the Marathon Medic podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a junior doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. These podcast episodes are usually pretty running focused, but in the next few episodes we'll be chatting about some other outdoor sports instead. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Megan Evans, a junior doctor and dive master working at the DDRC, the Diving Diseases Research Centre, which specialises in diving medicine and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. This episode is mainly aimed at healthcare professionals or those with a keen interest in diving, and we'll be discussing what makes a safe or unsafe dive, fitness to dive assessments, and what decompression illness is, as well as the symptoms to be aware of. As always, this podcast does not substitute for any formal training, but I hope our discussion will be of interest to those listening. Hi, Megan, and thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So we're going to discuss dive medicine today, and there's obviously a particular reason why um, I invited you to speak about this, because you've got a very cool job at the moment. So would you mind explaining a little bit about yourself and what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, of course. So um, I am currently working at DDRC Healthcare, which is a hyperbaric medical centre in Plymouth. I am working there for a year um, as one of their SHOs. Um, I'm actually in my F5 year, um, if you want to call it that. And we uh, treat divers. um, We treat other patients with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We look at fitness to dive. Um, we provide training, um, all sorts of different bits and pieces. So, yeah, it's a really, really cool job. And what attracted you to dive medicine? Because that's obviously not something we tend to cover in medical school, and it's definitely not something that we can rotate around during our foundation training. So what first, I, I guess it's quite obvious what attracted you to the role, because it sounds really interesting and really varied. But how did you find out about it? So I am a diver myself. I've been diving since I was kind of a, a teenager. And... I did my dive master training a few years ago and uh, while I was working as a dive master um, I was really interested in the diving medicine parts of the dive master training what to do with an unwell diver and things like that and it just made me want to look more into dive medicine and the things that can happen and from that really I just thought well why not combine my hobby and my career um, and I found out about the um, DDRC job through the Adventure Medic um, page. Someone had written an article on it previously from kind of years and years back. So I just tentatively inquired to say, are you still offering this job for junior doctors? And and here we are. You mentioned um, a little bit about it before, but what kind of things do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so the job's really varied. We hold the phone line, so the National Diving Accident Emergency Helpline, um, which is kind of through the British Hyperbaric Association. So we answer calls kind of 24-7, 365 days a year um, from divers all around the UK. We can either kind of give advice over the phone, we can advise them where their local chamber is, or if we think that they need to go to um, A&E, for example, instead. We see, obviously, any divers who are in our area or where we're there nearest chamber we would see them and and treat them if needed and kind of the other side of of hyperbarics is our elective patients so we also use hyperbaric oxygen therapy to treat kind of a a number of other conditions um, including kind of non-healing wounds kind of diabetic foot ulcers um, osteoradionecrosis and other radiation tissue damage is a common one as well 
and uh, our fitness to dive clinics are another big part of the job. So advising divers on uh, their fitness to dive with various different medical conditions. So yeah, really kind of lovely, varied job and, and really interesting. It sounds it, and we're going to dive into a few of those topics a little bit more in depth. But I was just wondering, from a, I guess, a diver perspective rather than a than a medic's perspective, um, what do you think the most important things are when it comes to planning someone's dives? Obviously, you see the worst case scenario, um, but ideally, divers don't end up in your unit. So, what are the things that that divers can consider when they are planning their diving trips to try and minimise the risks to their health? I think if you look at um, kind of incident reports and safety statistics for diving it's actually a really really safe sport um, but where there are problems and where there have been issues and where people do end up getting hurt is largely down to diver error by that I mean things like um, kind of a diver feeling a bit ill but trying to push themselves and go on the dive anyway when really they know that they should probably just sit this one out or um equipment failures because actually they've not had their regulator serviced in the last six years and they've just decided to go on a quick dive today kind of last minute um so i think the planning side of things in terms of making sure that you're fit to dive your equipment is well serviced and the conditions are appropriate and you have the skills and the ability to be able to deal with the conditions that you're diving and kind of really set you up for a, a safe dive initially and in terms of planning the dive itself, uh, I've heard you speak a few times about dive profiles. So what is a dive profile and what constitutes a safer dive profile? So a dive profile is essentially the um, the, the course that your dive takes. Um, and you can think of it as if you're plotting out the depth um, over uh, kind of on the y-axis um, over time on the x-axis. And if you actually draw it out, it will create a shape. And that's what we think of as the dive profile. The kind of classic dive profile um, and the most simple and straightforward one would be what we call a square profile. So that would be when you descend to your maximum depth, you spend the majority of your dive time at that maximum depth, and then you ascend to the surface. And that would create a lovely, nice square um, dive profile. Other common profiles would be a multi-level profile. Um, so this might be where you descend to your maximum depth, you spend some time at that depth, then you ascend slightly and you spend a little bit more time at the slightly shallower depth. And you can do that kind of in various different stages before your final ascent to the surface. Um, so those are uh, two examples of, of what I would consider to be safe dive profiles. The things that we try to avoid and the things that we would try to not recommend divers do would be reverse profiles. Um, and by this, what I would mean is if someone spent time during their dive at quite a shallow depth um, first and then went deeper, spent some time at depth, at their kind of maximum depth, and then ascended to the surface. And what you've got there is a reverse profile because you're spending the shallow time in your dive uh, at the beginning of the dive initially. Um, the reason why we try to avoid this is because it increases the risk of, of decompression sickness. And, and the same if you're doing multiple dives in one day, we would always try to advise that you plan your day and plan your dive so that you're doing your deepest dive first, followed by your more shallow dives later on in the day. 
Um, and again, that's that's the same concept by doing your deeper dive first and then shallower dives, you're reducing the risk of decompression illness. This might sound like a very silly question. Is that something that most people do do? Because I suppose from uh, my perspective, not having really any familiarity with diving, my gut instinct would be that it'd be better to kind of start, start shallow and gradually go down to deeper depth. But is it something that's well known within the diving community that that's how you'd have a safe dive profile and you do start with your deeper dives first? Yeah, I mean, it, sh- it should be. And obviously, this all depends on who you're diving with, if you're diving with a dive organisation. Um, hopefully that they would have thought about those things. Um, if you're planning your own dives, then it's definitely something that you need to consider. And I think it should be, you know, it should always be considered. Um, if you're doing kind of very shallow, short dives, sometimes it, it wouldn't make much of a difference. For example, if I did a, a 20 minute dive to 10 meters, followed by a 20 minute dive to 15 meters, you know, that technically would be a reverse profile. Although at that, at those kind of shallow depths, um, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't cause too much of a problem it's when you get on to deeper dives and longer dives and um, you really have a chance for that inert gas load so that nitrogen load to build up in your tissues um, and then obviously that's what goes on to uh, increase your risk of decompression illness and finally just on on the topic of uh, planning dives and trying to make those as safe as possible is kit and the gas mixes that are used uh, important in, in terms of safety or generally all of those things quite standard across the board so kit, I would say, is really, really important in terms of fit safety. So you always want to know um, that the kit that you're using, whether it's yours or whether you've hired it, is um, well maintained and serviced. Um, you want to be familiar with all the kit that you're using. For example, if you've borrowed something and your release mechanism or your dump valves, for example, are in a different place that you're used to, in an emergency underwater, that could cause problems. So you really need to be familiar with the kit that you're using and comfortable and happy that you know how everything works and where all the bits are that you're going to need. In terms of gas mixes, most recreational divers um, and certainly more beginner divers will use compressed air. So there's no gas mixing, it's just normal air that gets compressed into the cylinders. As you get a little bit more advanced with your diving, Nitrox is becoming increasingly uh, kind of used more frequently. Um, Nitrox diving is diving using a gas that has a higher fraction of oxygen, a higher percentage of oxygen in the mix. Um, So, for example, you might dive with Nitrox 32, which would have 32% oxygen um, in the cylinder as opposed to your normal 21% oxygen in air. The, the more advanced you get and the, and the more technical diving you do, um, you can go on and use um, other gas mixes, including helium. So you can have helium, heliox mixes, so helium and oxygen. You can have tri-mixes, so helium, oxygen and nitrogen. And, and, and essentially, diving is as simple or as complicated as you want to make it. And there are lots of amazing, amazing, very experienced tech divers who do very complicated diving where they have different cylinders with different gas mixes in them for different stages of their dives and by the time you get to that level you should absolutely know what gas mix you need when and why and be comfortable and safe with 
the equipment and, and who's mixing your gases and all of those things. But as I say, for most, most divers and certainly beginner divers, you're just looking at compressed air in your cylinder. And the main thing that you need to check is, is your cylinder full? And does, does the gas, does the air taste clean when you, when you try it um, to make sure it's not contaminated? This is all making uh, running sound very simple and straightforward. <laughs> less, less kit with running, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, from the medical perspective, you mentioned that you do uh, fitness to dive assessments. So what kind of things are you looking for when you're doing those assessments? And are there any particular contraindications to diving that, that would kind of raise alarm bells in your mind when you're assessing somebody? Yeah, so fitness to dive is really important. And I think it's something that often in the in the dive community itself can be overlooked. As someone who has fitness to dive conversations with people, I always want to try to enable people to dive safely. Um, I don't want to stop people from diving or say that they, they can't dive or they're not safe to dive. But really, as I say, it's about enabling people to dive safely. There are things that would be contraindicated um, to be a safe diver. And really, when we're when we're looking at fitness to dive, you can kind of do it in a systems approach. Respiratory is obviously a big one when you're thinking about gases and, and pressure of diving. And with respiratory, what the main thing that we look at is conditions which will increase the risk of gas trapping. So any bronchoconstriction, so asthmatics, um, COPD, or any kind of cavitating lesions, kind of air, air spaces in the lungs. Uh, where gas might be caught and be not exhaled fully will increase the risk of having pulmonary barotrauma. Um, so essentially developing a pneumothorax because of a burst lung because of that, that change in pressure. Kind of moving on to, to cardiovascular, uh, you need a well-functioning cardiovascular system. There is a condition called immersion pulmonary edema, which doesn't just apply to divers. It can affect swimmers and, and triathletes and anyone in, in the water um, but it's a um, condition where the hydrostatic pressure of the water around you essentially forces blood to pool um, centrally a vasoconstriction caused by being in cold water will will exacerbate this um, and you can overload overload the cardiovascular system and end up with pul acute pulmonary edema which can be life-threatening um, so people who have hypertension are at increased risk of this um, and certainly people who have kind of other more complex card cardiovascular issues will definitely need a, a cardiovascular assessment um, to ensure that they're, they're kind of not putting themselves at undue risk. So by looking at different systems and by considering the underwater environment, whether that's the pressure or whether that's the, the gas kind of mixes itself, you can have a look and see what you need to think about with each individual's medical history. On a more day-to-day -day basis for divers that aren't necessarily being assessed for fitness to dive, but they might be on a diving holiday or trip or just, just with their friends, um, what kind of things should they be thinking about that should make them stop going in the water? So you mentioned earlier often these accidents that happen or or injuries or when people become unwell is often because of human error maybe people going diving when when they shouldn't be is there any particular things that would make you worry or is it just anything that might make someone feel unwell um, or under the weather that they should just not not dive that day so I think in general if you're feeling under the weather you probably shouldn't dive and just from a kind of general fatigue point of view 
when you're diving, yes, the vast majority of the time you're going to be completely fine and you're going to have a lovely dive. But there's always that risk of, for example, being caught in a strong current, um, needing to rescue a buddy. You kind of need to be mentally sharp, have that clarity and also physically kind of strong and fit enough to deal with those emergency situations. In terms of specific things, one of the most common ones would be um, congestion. So if people develop a bit of a cold, a bit of a upper respiratory tract infection and they have congestion, it's going to impact their ability to equalize their ears when they're underwater. So when you're diving, you need to equalize your middle ear space. Um, People can do this by doing kind of a gentle valsalva underwater or kind of yawning, wiggling their jaws, all sorts of different techniques. If people are congested, then that that will impact their ability to equalize and they could end up with middle ear barotrauma. I guess the other thing would be if you have had, particularly for people who were on diving expeditions or on holiday and they're doing lots of diving or lots of swimming, if you are having kind of ear pain or if you have had some ear pain on a dive, I would advise not to dive again until it's settled down or until it's been looked at because people kind of try to push it and push it and push it and then end up with a with a horrible otitis external, horrible ear infection um, or alternatively a perforated eardrum. Those are, I think, the, the really common ones um, for, for recreational divers. Thank you. That's, that's, that's really useful to know. And I think you can be under quite a lot of pressure probably in those situations to dive if you've only got a certain amount of of days that you're on holiday and and able to do that you can kind of push yourself to do things that maybe in a different setting you wouldn't be forcing yourself to do so that that's really helpful thank you moving on to the I guess more negative side of diving so the medical problems that are associated with diving obviously hopefully quite rare and, and doesn't happen to the majority of people that are diving we've touched on decompression illness uh, which I, I guess is more commonly known as the bends. Would you mind just explaining exactly what that is and also what kind of symptoms divers, medics and you know people that are with divers should be on the lookout for? Yeah, absolutely. So decompression illness is, as you say, a condition that affects divers and kind of people working under pressure. It's actually an umbrella term which encompasses two separate pathophysiologies, if you will, So decompression illness covers both decompression sickness and arterial gas embolism. They are both conditions caused by gas bubbles being in the wrong places in in its simplest terms. So decompression sickness we can think of as evolved gas. When you are diving, you are inhaling the gas from your cylinder at ambient pressure. So if you are 10 metres underwater, the ambient pressure is around two bar or two atmospheres. That means that you are inhaling your oxygen and your nitrogen in your uh, gas cylinder and ambient pressure um, of around two atmospheres. As you do that and throughout your dive, because you are taking on board more nitrogen than you would normally at the surface, that nitrogen can accumulate in your blood and in your tissues. Um, which is absolutely fine. Um, the issue is when you then decrease in pressure, i.e. when you ascend from your dive, that nitrogen will then start to come out of your tissues and come out of um, your blood. Um, and the idea is what we want to happen is that that will make its way to your lungs and be exhaled normally and you don't have any problems and you're well. What can happen if you have made, for example, a, ra- a very rapid ascent um, is that that nitrogen doesn't have a chance to 
diffuse out through your uh, tissues, into your blood, through your lungs and be exhaled. And instead, it comes out of solution um, and forms bubbles of nitrogen in your blood and in your tissues. And those bubbles can cause symptoms depending on whereabouts they are in the body, where they form in the body. So that's how decompression and sickness works. Arterial gas embolism, we think of as escaped gas. And the most um, kind of well-known form of arterial gas embolism is if you have a pulmonary barotrauma. So you have a pneumothorax under the water, um, an alveolus pops because of the pressure changes, um, and you have air which can pass into the circulation because of that damage. Um, and then you have uh, you have essentially a gas bubble in your arterial circulation. Um, and the most kind of um, serious form of this would be a cerebral arterial gas embolism, um, which obviously would cause stroke-like symptoms. So I, I actually didn't appreciate that there were that was an umbrella term, and there were two different um, two different kind of aspects of that. So thanks for mm-hmm. clarifying that. And as you mentioned, the the symptoms that you will get will depend what body system is affected, and many body systems can be affected by this, depending on whether where the gas bubble ends up. What are the most common things that you would see, say, if you were a medic on a dive expedition? Um, what what symptoms do people commonly present with? So. As you say, quite rightly, it can affect any system of the body. You know, hopefully these things aren't aren't common at all, but things that you would want to look out for would be so musculoskeletal, so joint or limb pain. Um, The bubbles can form kind of in joint spaces themselves, commonly affected kind of shoulder, elbow and knee joints, but can be any joints. Skin, so cutaneous bends where people have bubbles forming in the layers of their skin. They can have a mottled rash, which is called a cutis marmorata rash. Um, It's kind of a red mottled appearance. It can be a bit itchy. People can get lymphatic bends, which is very rare, um, but where you can have uh, bubbles in your lymphatic system or in the the veins draining your your lymphatics. And people can present with swelling, so kind of unilateral one-sided arm swelling or breast swelling, for example. Some of the more kind of serious, I guess, and the more worrying forms of DCI be neurological DCI. So depending on where the bubbles are in the brain or the spinal cord, you can have a whole host of different neurological symptoms, whether that's um, weakness, sensation changes, cranial nerve deficits, so um, eye movement, speech difficulties, facial drooping. Um, all of the things that you might expect in someone who, who might have a stroke. Equally, you can have audio vestibular decompression illness. So this is when you can have gas bubbles in the inner ear itself. Um, and this would present with uh, a lot of nausea, vertigo, kind of an ataxic walk. So people really kind of staggering about, feeling very, very sick and dizzy. That would be an audio vestibular bend. And these things can, can occur independently or you might have people with a a variety of these different symptoms just last week I saw someone who had both shoulder pain and neurological symptoms so you can have combinations so I suppose in a way anything that's abnormal for that individual or any symptom they have should be considered as you know potentially being as a result of their diving um if they have just come come from diving it, it could it's likely that those symptoms are attributable to that yeah absolutely and I think you know, divers um, hopefully recognise the fact that any symptom that occurs after diving, it's best to discuss it with a diving doctor to, to kind of get that get that assessment and get that um, 
get that review. And, and you know, equally with medics, you, you, you need to think really anything that occurs within kind of 24, 48 hours of someone having been diving um, up to kind of 72 hours, although most present much sooner, um, need to be considered. Could this be a diving related illness or injury? Um, and you always need to have that in the back of your mind when seeing anyone who's who's been diving. And am I correct in thinking that these symptoms will probably evolve over time? So it might start with something relatively benign that that maybe a diver could ignore, but then that symptom might develop. Yeah. So, you know, symptom courses can vary. Um, definitely some can develop, um, which is why it's important to kind of have that conversation as soon as you as you notice that symptom. Um, some may not develop. Some may just stay the same. So particularly the kind of joint pains. Um, the skin bends, some even resolve by themselves. Even if you have a very kind of mild or minor symptom like a rash um, or just a, a very mild pain in, in your shoulder, for example, um, that you're not too worried about or that is um, actually going away by itself, I would say it's still better. You still need to speak to a diving doctor and certainly not go diving again until you've spoken to a diving doctor because it actually might be, A, there might be other subtle symptoms that you've not actually noticed yourself which might be picked up on a full neurological assessment and b there might be a re- an underlying reason as to why you've had this problem particularly with divers who have symptoms of decompression illness after having completed a normal dive with you know that lovely dive profile that we that we spoke about you know they didn't have a rapid ascent and um, their dive was absolutely lovely and they've still got a decompression illness. We need to really ask ourselves why. Um, and in these individuals, we would think about um, screening for a, a PFO. Um, so a patent foramen ovale, a hole in the heart, um, which, which can increase the risk of decompression illness. Um, so, you know, yes, these symptoms can evolve. And yes, you definitely need to be reviewed, particularly if they are getting worse. Um, but even if they're not getting worse, even if it's something mild that you're not concerned about, you know, there actually might be something else going on that we need to that we need to look into, that we need to pick up. That's so interesting. I'd never heard of the link between PFO and um, decompression illness. So <laughs> that's definitely my take home message from this. And then I guess this kind of all links back to, to your role at the DDRC in that hyperbaric medicine is used to treat these these diving conditions. So. I assume when you're in these dive settings, the the priority is to obviously firstly speak to a diving doctor. But if this is considered a decompression illness, to get somebody to um, a hyperbaric chamber. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you are particularly a medic, but really anyone um, around a diver who has developed any symptoms after diving or feels unwell, Absolutely, as you say, you need to get on the phone to a diving doctor. In the UK, we've got the National Diving Accident Helpline. Um, when you're abroad, there's um, various kind of diving organisations. DAN is the big one, uh, kind of divers insurance company. Um, and the other thing that you can do for your patient um, or for the diver is put them on oxygen at surface. So most dive shops, in fact, all dive shops should have 100% oxygen cylinders that a diver can breathe from if they um, feel unwell after diving. Um, and that's really your your initial first aid. Um, regardless of what their saturations are, regardless if you know they don't feel short of breath, they're not having difficulty breathing, they've got symptoms after diving that you think might be due to decompression illness, you put them on oxygen. And essentially this will help, you know, then 
if they're breathing 100% oxygen, they're not taking any more nitrogen on board. Um, so you're not going to um, hopefully make those bubbles of gas, bubbles of nitrogen grow any bigger. Um, but also you're going to help eliminate nitrogen from the body quicker um, by kind of increasing that, that diffusion gradient just by just breathing pure oxygen. And without going into too much of the, the in-depth medicine um, behind hyperbaric medicine, because obviously it's quite a complex topic, um, would you mind just briefly touching on what hyperbaric medicine is and, and why that is the treatment for these uh, diving-related illnesses? Yeah, so um, kind of diving and hyperbaric medicine is the treatment um, using hyperbaric oxygen. So by that, I mean high-pressure oxygen. So hyperbaric just means high-pressure um, so what we have is we have hyperbaric chambers, which are solid airtight structures that you put the patient into, pressurise the environment. So you pump lots of air in um, to make it a pressurised environment. Um, and you have the, the diver or the patient breathing oxygen in that pressurised environment. They are breathing a, a hyperbaric dose of oxygen. With diving illnesses, this helps kind of in two ways. And um, the pressure itself, being in a pressurized environment, will help squash and crush any of those bubbles that are causing problems. So obviously, as the pressure increases, the volume decreases um, of gases. Um, so that's Boyle's law, if we've got any physics uh, enthusiasts out there. So you increase the pressure and that will squish um, those gas bubbles that are causing the problems and help, uh, help get them out, help you be able to eliminate them. Um, and the other thing is the very high pressure of oxygen, as I say, will help eliminate the nitrogen that's built up in the tissues faster. Um, and hyperbaric oxygen also has anti-inflammatory kind of effects um, and will help deal with the consequences um, of having that bubble. Imagine if you have a bubble that's stuck in a blood vessel um, your body acts as though this is a foreign object and you have a big inflammatory cascade and you get swelling and you get all of your kind of cytokines and your leukocytes and everything involved. Um, and it's actually that inflammation that causes the symptoms as much as the bubble itself. Um, so hyperbaric oxygen helps deal with that um, as well. So it's kind of a two pronged treatment approach. You've got pressure and you've got the oxygen. Great. Thank you. That's, that's really interesting, especially because it's not something that we use day to day. So it's, it's nice to hear from, from you, who's obviously working in that setting a little bit more about how that works. Um, finally, do you have any kind of final tips for people that are either participating in diving or any healthcare professionals that might be, when things open up, um, going on trips and, and working as diving medics? So I think um, if you're a medic and you're going to be working in situations where you might be asked to look after divers, I think it's really, really vital that you um, make sure that you have some diving medicine training um, before you go out. I know a lot of kind of medics go off on expeditions and are looking after divers, but I think doing a course in kind of diving expedition medicine or, or doing a bit of research into dive medicine is, is really vital because you need to know what you're looking for um, and what to do if something does go wrong. For divers themselves, it's been a kind of it's been a lockdown for everyone and there are a lot of divers now who are just starting to get back in the water kind of post-covid um and i think you know what we're what we're advising everyone is make sure that your health and your fitness level is okay before you go back to diving so don't expect if you've been kind of a bit more sedentary over the past year than you than you were before to go straight back to doing 
kind of deep and complex dives. Ease yourself in slowly. Refamiliarize yourself with your skills. Make sure that you've had your kit checked because it's probably been sat in the boot of the car or the shed or the garage for the last year. And just make sure that you're doing things at a slow rate and you're not trying to jump back in. Equally, kind of on the on the COVID uh, kind of thoughts, we are seeing divers who are wanting to get back into the water after having had a COVID infection. Um, and the current advice is because of the risk of lung damage, you do really need to be seen by a diving doctor before getting back into the water as well. So those are the things that I would say to divers at the moment. Yeah, that's a really, um, really good point about the the return to to diving. And I think it's relevant to returning to to sport in general, that we're obviously all kind of eager to return to what we used to do and have to appreciate that it's going to take some time for our body to adapt. If people do want to find out more about you or more about the DDRC, do you have any recommendations um, for them about sites they can visit and also any resources for people either partaking in diving or healthcare professionals that want to learn a bit more about dive medicine? Uh, yeah, so the um, DDRC website, so that's ddrc.org, has um, some really good information, um, particularly aimed at divers on different conditions. So can I dive with X? Can I dive with Y? The UK DMC website, so that's the UK Diving Medical Committee, also has a lot of really good information um, and information as well, kind of more aimed at medical professionals, I guess, on, on various different medical conditions. Um, and how that impacts people's fitness to dive. So that would that would be definitely one that I would check out if you're interested. There's also a book which is called, if I can remember, FAQ in Dive Medicine um, by Oliver Firth, um, which is a really good resource, which is kind of aimed at both divers and medics. Um, and again, has answers lots of questions about, um, about dive medicine and about fitness to dive queries. So I, I'd recommend that one. Great. Thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation, especially for me, who knows nothing about dive medicine. So thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. It's been it's been great. And hopefully I've not um, I've not put too many people off diving. There are some scary things that happen, but they're very rare. And um, and I want to get everyone, everyone inspired to get in the water if they can. So. Many thanks to Megan for joining me today to discuss dive medicine. If you want to hear more from Megan, then you can find her on Instagram by searching Dr. Megan Evans. And you can find out more about the Diving Diseases Research Centre at ddrc.org. If running content is more your thing, then be sure to head to marathonmedic.com and I'll be back chatting about running again soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.